So tonight I'm going to be um, teaching the Bible study. And the subject I want to talk about is in line and keeping also with the theme for this month, which is uh, Christian living, with being crucified with Christ, and also having a good understanding of the Christian faith. Uh, Particularly in this culture, I thought it was appropriate uh, for me to teach on this particular subject. Uh, And we're going to be talking about uh, apologetics. And we'll be looking at 1 Peter 3.15. And this uh, particular lesson is part of a series I teach on this, on this subject. Uh, I have about five or six lessons in this, and this is just one of them. And I've kind of summarized some of the other ones to kind of uh, bring it all together, so to speak. We're going to be talking about apologetics and about how to properly defend and explain uh, your faith. To be able to explain your faith in a manner that is effective and also winnable. And also want to talk about how to answer the critics Uh, the criticisms against the Christian faith, and some of the typical ways in which the Bible's credibility is attacked. This particular lesson is about biblical integrity. We're going to be talking particularly about uh, how the Bible stands on its own and also how to defend its integrity against criticism. This uh, lesson is divided into sections. The first one's called, I'm Sorry, and this is going to be an introduction into apologetics. Uh, We're going to basically define what apologetics is. Section number two is called apostasy. We're going to talk about how there is a great falling away in Christendom uh, into the true doctrines of the faith and that it's, it's, it's happening wholesale across all denominations in which that people are just simply backing away from established Christian doctrine. And we'll talk about that in the apostasy. Thirdly, we're going to talk about a section called I Want My Lawyer. And we're going to, now we're going to get into some of the types of accusations that are made against the credibility of the Bible, the types of accusers and some of the arguments that they will use to discredit the Bible. Finally, we're going to talk about cross-examination. In this section, we're going to talk about how, how Christ is the, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, and that when we look at the Bible as a whole, primarily they will all point, all the scriptures, they point to Christ, and that Christ in many ways is the answer to a lot of the objections that are raised against the credibility of the Bible. And so we're going to be talking about all these different subjects, and I'll do my best to do this with an hour and uh, get you guys home. Uh, in a timely manner. But let's get into our main text, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which simply says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We want to always be ready to give an answer, give an explanation. One of the things that I, I can even attest to growing up and uh, in, in being a young Christian is that uh, sometimes we were not always equipped or armed uh, with the facts in order to truly defend and explain our faith. Just saying the answer, this response as to why you believe what you believe, well, it's because this is what the church teaches or because this is what my pastor says. Those, those are types of uh, responses are really inept. They don't fully address the question. You want to be able to give logical and rational explanations and reasons to defend what you believe. And apologetics is a, is a form of evangelism. It's a form of, of really winning over critics and winning people over to the side of the gospel. And so we want to be sure that we're equipped to do that. Uh, really growing up, I wasn't really, at least in Sunday school and other classes and so on in, in church, I wasn't really taught how to think critically necessarily or how to really argue the case for the Christian faith. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't until I really got into my late teens and I have to really thank my brother Paul for this and really getting my, my mind out there and looking at other faiths and other denominations and the arguments against, against Christendom and how to properly defend them that I, I started to develop a good way of, uh, I guess you could say, apologizing for the Christian faith. But let's jump into this, uh, this lesson here. Section number one, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What is apologetics? You see here in the picture I have here, I have a sticky note that says I didn't do it, which is basically an explanation. It's, it's a defense. It's a, a reason as to uh, why we didn't do something. So apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to make a defense. Whenever we hear the word apology, say, I want you to apologize to someone, or, you know, we tend to think to say sorry, to admit wrongdoing, to admit guilt, to try to make amends or restitution for anything wrong that you've done or any offenses that you've committed. But that's not what the word actually means. It actually means to make a defense. In our main text in 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. That word there is apologia. Be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give an explanation. And because as you walk through the Christian life, you're going to be confronted with situations and with critics who are going to raise questions regarding what you believe and why you believe it and to try and damage your faith and even persuade you to leave your faith. Uh, what we're seeing in a, on a mass scale is people that are detransitioning. They're, they're leaving the faith in droves for various different philosophies uh, and for various reasons. And we'll get into some of those later on. But what we want to do is be sure that you have a good, solid foundation for defending your faith. So again, apologetics, it literally means to make a defense to give an explanation for the, for the hope that lies within you. So we're saying we're apologizing for the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that we're admitting that we're wrong or that we're trying to write an offense or we're admitting guilt in some way. We're actually providing a defense. We're, we're providing an explanation as to why we believe what we believe. Some apologetic functions. Number one, as I just stated, is to defend the Scripture from heresy, heresy being false or wrong teaching, things that are contrary to biblical doctrine to provide explanations and reasons for faith and action, and to persuade unbelievers to believe in Jesus Christ and His Word. The thing about apologetics is our objective is not to attack the, the, our, our critics. It's not to, um, to necessarily always win the argument, but apologetics is about one ex giving explanations, but also winning the person. Because you could win the argument. You could prove that they're wrong and that their, their statements are illogical or rational, but you may not have won the person. And if that's not the case, then we really haven't won anything at all. Because the objective of apologetics, the objective of the Christian faith, is to evangelize, is to persuade men and women to come into a believing and saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so we want to be sure that we're, we're, when we're doing this, we're not doing it in a way that's um, egotistical or arrogant or necessarily derogatory. Uh, we don't want to in insult our audience. And one of the things I, I've seen <laughs> uh, amongst Christians is that when we... When we know that we're right about something, we tend to take, use the Bible like an axe, and we just start hacking away at people and beating people with Scripture to try and, and condemn them into changing their ways. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place where we want to show them how wicked a sin is or show them how wrong a, si a situation is, but we have to do it with a bit of some grace, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, I, when I gave all diligence to write unto, to write unto you, of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That this command is given to all Christians that we are to earnestly contend, to fight, to wrestle, hand-to-hand -hand combat, so to speak, to defend the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You must be able to defend what you believe. You must be able. Because if you don't, I guarantee you, sometime you're going to come up against a critic. You're going to come against... A situation that's going to challenge your faith. It's going to challenge the reasons why you believe what you believe. Now, one of the reasons why I, I make such a big deal of this, and when I was a youth pastor 
back in Michigan, I taught a lot of this stuff. Because if we're going to lose somebody, it's typically during the teenage or adolescent years when people are starting to question why we believe what we believe. As children, we're, you know, we accept anything we hear. We're somewhat naive, and we just believe whatever our parents tell us or whatever an authoritative figure tells us. As we get into the teenage years, we begin to investigate. We're curious. We wanted to question and to challenge. And it's during that time period where I've seen, at least um, as a youth pastor, where people are very susceptible to being persuaded to a different belief system and having what they believe to be challenged. And once we get into the college years, we've pretty much lost them if we've not really given them good arguments and reasons to defend their faith. And the fact of the matter is, if we do not have a biblical worldview, which means that our worldview, our morality, our standard of ethics, our ability to reason and to think is not grounded and rooted on the foundation of Scripture, we are going to be persuaded and deceived into false doctrine. And we're seeing it on a, on a wholesale and all over the world, all over this generation. Acts 17, verses 16 through 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. And when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. That the apostle Paul, he, whenever he went to preach the gospel, he was constantly having to defend his belief. And he also had to dispute with the other philosophies that were going on in his day. Christianity was new at that time. No one ever heard of, really, of, of Christ. And the idea of someone resurrecting from the dead, especially to a Greek audience, was absurd and, and quite offensive. It almost seemed irrationalogical. And so, especially when Paul was talking with, with, the, with the Greeks and also with the Jews, the Jews were always looking for, well, okay, give us some scriptural proof for this, looking for a sign or a miracle to substantiate that the, the statements that Paul was making. He was constantly having to dispute to argue the case, to persuade people to believe in, in Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. And we want to be sure that we are doing the same. Now, in order to, proper, um, to practice proper apologetics, we need to have a good understanding of biblical interpretation. So we're beginning to do some uh, hermeneutics as well into this. So let me just give you some terms first of all. Firstly, uh, the term exegesis. It means to lead out critical explanation or interpretation of a text. It literally means to lead out, to extract to extrapolate from a particular text. And so whenever we're, we're talking about biblical interpretation, whenever we're getting into deriving the meaning of what the Bible is saying, we want to be sure that we're getting the meaning from the text and we're not putting stuff into it. And this is a big thing that a lot of people do, especially those who are preaching and teaching false doctrine. To prevent exegesis... Now, exegesis is just an interpretation. It's just, your, it's just an interpretation. It should be based upon facts and based upon what the text says, what the intention of the writer was. It's just explanation. Now, how do we arrive at these explanations? We use hermeneutics, which is the science or method of explanation or interpretation of Scripture, which means that whenever we're reading the Bible, you can't just take any uh, approach that you want. There are proper methods in interpreting Scripture. You can't just say, well, this is just what I think it means. Uh, another way of looking at it, it's kind of contrasting exegesis and, and hermeneutics. It's almost like mathematics, right? Say the answer is four, all right? That's your exegesis. That's your explanation. Well, how did you arrive at that explanation? Well, two plus two equals four. That's hermeneutics. That's the, it's the, it shows you how did you get to the conclusion that you got to. What's the methodology? What's the philosophy? What's the approach, the approach that you're using to arrive at the biblical conclusions that you're coming to? And so we want to be sure that we're using good, what we call hermeneutical principles in our interpretation. Now we come to another term, which is called eisegesis. 
which is the opposite of exegesis, which means to lead into, literally means to put something into the text that doesn't exist. We're approaching the text with presuppositions, with our own ideas, or with a cultural perspective, and we're, we're superimposing that idea over what the Scripture actually says. And people do this all the time. I mean, all the time. I've, I've even been guilty of this at times, where I came because of a, a previous teaching or because of a previous tradition. I, I read the, the text through a particular lens that the text wasn't even saying, that the original audience would have never understood, that the original uh, intention of the text never was trying to bring across to the audience. And so because of that, we have to be very, very careful that whenever we're reading the text, to read it carefully and try and base our conclusions on what it says and not add things to it not approach it with our own opinions or our own presuppositions, but try and extrapolate from what the text says. 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly interpreting, rightly breaking down what the text says. And we want to do this by following some of these, uh, the principles that are there. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just, just a few of them that, just to kind of consider is this one, of course, context looking at the context of the verse, looking at the grammar, looking at the, what the audience was, who's the intended audience, looking at the historical time period, looking at the cultural time period. Just think of that thing. Things are happening in the narrative. All these different things are, are factors to consider whenever you are looking at the verse that you're trying to extrapolate an, uh, an interpretation from. Some proper ways or methods that we can practice apologetics. Number one, ask yourself questions. Whenever you're, you're, you have a belief, challenge your belief. Don't just believe this just because we say it. Believe it because the Bible says it. I, I say this oftentimes to my students. Don't believe anything I say or believe anything that pastor says. Go and research the Bible yourself. Okay, you cannot believe it just because a man of God said it. You can't, you can't believe it just because an authoritative figure says it. You've got to go back to the text. Always challenge. Always research. Always study. Never assume. That just because a pastor, a bishop, or apostle, or whoever, or myself, or pastor said it, that it's true. Always go back to the text. We want to be what's called a Berean who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. I say that because I've seen so many sheep, so to speak, be led astray because they did not practice any personal, what's the word, responsibility in understanding biblical doctrine. They just accepted what was taught. They were spoon-fed a doctrine, spoon-fed a teaching, spoon-fed an idea or philosophy, never challenged it, never researched it, never studied it, never questioned it. No, I, I invite questions because I want to make sure what I'm teaching is right. Because what if I am wrong? What if I am wrong in some place? I want to be sure that I'm, I'm, I'm teaching good doctrine. So we want to be sure that we challenge, uh, that we research. We don't just accept it because an authoritative figure said it. Let's go examine what the text says for itself. So ask yourself questions. Okay, if I was an unbeliever and I was hearing someone uh, telling me about this, what are some logical questions I would ask to try and to understand or maybe even challenge what I'm believing? Number two, rely on Scripture only. This is, of course, a, a cry of the Lutheran church, of, of Martin Luther, sola scriptura, which is on Scripture alone, which means we want to base our conclusions regarding God, regarding theology, on the Scripture alone, that the Bible is, has the final say, it is the final authority concerning anything regarding morality, regarding ethics, regarding the idea of God or anything within the Christian faith. 
we don't want to necessarily fully rely on outside sources. Not to say that we can't rely on secular sources to get a historical context or whatever. But when it comes down to what the final say is, the scripture has the final say. So rely on scripture only. Don't just say, well, because, well, Bishop so-and-so said this. Or Pastor so-and-so said this. What does the scripture say? That's what we want to be sure we base this on. Brother Joe, you had a, a comment or question on this? Uh, or Brother, did you bring the mic? Okay. sense that goes to say that, you know, what, what gets me when it comes to revelation is that when God say what's flesh is flesh and what's spirit is spirit, determining what you think because you were raised up in a fleshly mentality versus having a relationship to God and knowing what God is saying when because he only speaks spirit. Most of the time, God is spiritually speaking about spiritual things. Can you say that in the context? Well, yes, that God is spirit, and he does speak spiritual things. And 1 Corinthians 2 does say that the natural man can't receive of the things of the spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. That is true, which is why we need to enlist the aid of the Holy Spirit to bring about revelation. Because there are people with PhDs and doctorates in Hebrew and Greek who still stumble over some of the basic fundamental things of the Christian doctrine and of the scripture, who miss it. They, they completely miss certain things, even with their much learning, even with their much education. There's certain things they just don't get or just don't see, and because it's, it's revelation. It, the Holy Spirit has to reveal these things to us. So that, that is a big deal. So again, when I'm getting back to this whole um, Christian apologetics, it's such a huge deal. I would, I would argue that 99% of the time, the reason why that our young people, or really anyone, is backsliding, because at some juncture, they have lost faith in the authority of Scripture. So they've watched some sort of documentary, They've encountered some sort of really witty and clever person who's able to frame certain arguments in a way that makes the Bible look ridiculous. And because of that, they lose their faith in this foundational teaching and they fall away. And that's why it's so important. This is such an important topic. Because if you don't know how to defend yourself, you're going to be swept away. And also this generation is being swept. I'm seeing it. I, I know of um, some friends of mine who have... Uh, who have a daughter who's really starting to backslide and kind of get and getting into things, and because they they don't necessarily uh, she doesn't necessarily have that that uh, biblical foundation. Again, we're looking. Here's the other thing: the look, when, especially in the teenage young years, we're looking to our our social interactions to define what our morals are, what is right and wrong, what is because primarily as as human beings, we're social creatures. We want to be accepted. And so oftentimes we derive morality, what is right and wrong, by looking at our surroundings, by who we're hanging out with. And since they're the, the majority of the population they're hanging out with does not have a biblical worldview, it's very easy to get swept away into some of these things. And that's why it's, it's extremely important. I cannot emphasize this enough, especially in these last days where there is so much deception. There is so much deception and just bad teaching and bad philosophy. And I'd even say bad scholarship that's out there that is just designed to undermine the authority of God's word. So I want to be sure we're relying on scripture only. Practice good hermeneutics. Practice good principles of looking at the context, looking at uh, the, the grammar, the word usage, looking at who the author is, looking at the audience. Don't just take a scripture out of context, just quote stuff out of context. It's looking at it in isolation. We want to be sure we're practicing good biblical principles whenever we are interpreting scripture. Fulfill the burden of proof. Fulfill the burden of proof is another big thing. And this is something I see, not just Christians, but people do this all the time. They just make statements without any evidence 
whatsoever to substantiate the statements at all. We want to prove it. Burden of proof is the responsibility or obligation of an individual to provide evidence to substantiate a claim. Which means if I make a statement, I need, it's my burden to prove it to be true. It's my responsibility, my obligation to provide the corresponding evidence to show that this is true. So whenever you say something about God, you better have facts to back it up. Be sure you have chapter and verse to back it up. There are so many things that are being taught in the church that aren't even in the Bible. It's not there. Like I would challenge them to just go look it up. Where is that in the Bible? Start asking yourself that question. When you start up, when you're about to say something about God, you should ask yourself, well, where is that found in the Bible? If you can't quote it or you can't seem to know where it is, you might want to go double check that thing. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some of us, we know it is in the Bible. We just don't know where it is. It's good to know where it is, to be able to, because someone could convince you that it's not there, perhaps, or maybe you misheard, or that was just something that somebody said. You want to be sure that you have your evidence, you have your facts straight. We want to be sure we can satisfy the burden of proof. Whenever I say something about God or about morality, I usually will have chapter and verse to back it up. I do my absolute best to restrict my statements to what the scripture itself says. I try my absolute best not to go beyond that. And if I am going beyond that, let's say there's an area that seems a bit ambiguous, I will always tell the audience, this is, this, I don't have chapter and verse on this, this is just my opinion, or this is just a thought or a theory as to how to perhaps explain this phenomenon or address this issue. So here's something that happens in apologetics. When you're talking to someone, you're trying to convince them about the Christian faith, you're trying to talk about God, they'll pull sometimes a, a, a trick in argumentation called shifting the burden of proof which is a deceptive method of argumentation that transfers the responsibility or obligation of an individual to provide evidence for a claim to the opposing party. For example, Bigfoot exists. Prove that he doesn't. Bigfoot exists. Prove that he doesn't. That's, that's shifting the burden of proof because here's the thing. I've just made a claim. I provided no evidence for that claim being true, but I'm trying to make you prove that the, the claim is false. <laughs> even though I provided nothing to prove that it's true. I'm trying to make you work hard to prove something when I've done nothing to prove anything. That's called shifting the burden of proof. You're trying to get them to respond to a claim that we've not even established is actually even true in the first place. Watch for that. Watch for when people make a claim, they provide no evidence for it, and then they get, try to get you to argue against it. Watch for that. It's deception. So the thing is, whenever they make a claim, ask them, where are you getting that from? Who is your source? Who is your authority? Where in the Bible does that say that? Or, of course, depending on your audience, if you're talking to atheists, they, you know, they won't use the Bible as authority. But ask them, where are you guys getting your information from? Challenge them on this, because this gets them to also examine their own presuppositions and their own assertions. We want to be sure that we know why we believe, what we believe, and why we believe it. Getting back to it, you want to educate yourself to the other's belief. You're going to talk to somebody about, about your faith. It's good to know a little bit more about the person you're talking to. Know your audience. Because if you don't, you might say something that completely turned them off and offend them. You know, you just say, well, you'll start talking about, well, I was, you know, I'm this particular type of preacher or whatever. We're talking about this particular doctrinal issue. And maybe that might be a trigger for them, that because of an abuse of that doctrinal issue, that person was really hurt or harmed. Or maybe they don't like preachers because the, the preacher was, uh, was, a, was a hypocrite or what, he was a liar or whatever. Think, start thinking, find out backgrounds, find out things that they might find offensive or might turn them off, and then try to tailor your approach in presenting the gospel 
so that they are, it can be best received. I'm not saying sugarcoat the gospel, but I'm saying tailor it in a way that it can, be, it can be best received and understood so they don't automatically just reject what you're trying to say. Educate yourself to what they believe so you know what you're even defending against. Do not insult or attack. This is a huge one. Do not insult or attack. If you're trying to witness someone or you're dealing with a critic, do not insult the person. Do not attack the person's belief necessarily. But on the contrary, just provide good explanations for why you believe what you believe. If they cannot contramand the evidence that you're supporting, you've already won and show that your belief is correct. You don't necessarily have to insult or attack the person. Again, apologetics is about providing a defense, not an attack. We don't want to necessarily attack the person because our objective is to win the person to Christ, not insult them, demean them, belittle them, or degrade them, make them think they're stupid because nobody wants to you know, come over to the side of someone who's insulted and attack them. Sister Brown, you have a com- comment on this. Exactly. Uh, by the way, that was Ephesians 4.15 she just quoted. Again, whenever you make a statement, be sure we have scripture to back it up. So, she's absolutely right. One of the biggest things that I see in Christendom, we get into these arguments and we're angry because we're so outraged at how dare you say this or how dare you believe that or how dare you. And we get so angry and then we just go on the attack and we start attacking the individual when that's not the approach. Now, I wasn't going to say this for another uh, study, but I think it's very appropriate, and I better keep things moving. Don't you think it's interesting what the last miracle Jesus ever did on earth before he was crucified? You know what the last miracle Jesus ever did? Anyone out of curiosity? The very last miracle Jesus did before he was crucified. Exactly. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter got upset and he went to Jesus' defense. And he went and he cut off the ear of the, of the uh, high priest's servant. And what did Jesus do? He took the ear and he reattached it. That is a very good analogy of what I see in Christianity today. We have people who love Jesus, who are very passionate about Jesus, and want to defend Jesus. And in their their passion to defend Jesus, they're cutting off the ears of those who Jesus is trying to win. The name of the person whose ear got cut off, his name was Malchus. The name Malchus means kingdom. The person who cut off Malchus's ear is named Simon Peter. Simon means hearing or hearkening, and Peter means rock. And oftentimes we who have heard we are stones in the foundation of the, of the Christian faith. We cut off the ears of our audience in our passionate defense of the gospel. And what Jesus is wanting to do in these last days is to restore the hearing of those who have necessarily been offended, who have been attacked, unfortunately, by Jesus' own followers. So many people that we're trying to win have turned off of the gospel because, they've heard, one, they've heard it all before. And when they've heard it, it's been in a manner that that has been attacking and insulting. That's been in a way that's to condemn them as opposed to win them. 
And so we want to be very careful with this whenever we're, we're talking to people that we're not cutting off ears of Malchus. Because Malchus, again, his name means the kingdom. We're cutting off the ears of the kingdom sometimes with the word of God, being too harsh, being, too atta- doing, being derogatory. But instead, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to restore the hearing. He wants to heal the, the hearing of those that we're trying to reach so that they can hear properly what the gospel message is. That was a freebie. <laughs> All right. Use empathy and love to win an opponent. That's what Jesus did. How do you think Malchus must have felt in that moment? Well, that's in John 18 that I was quoting from. Also Matthew 26 and also Mark chapter 14. And also Luke 23. I'm sorry, I have to give scripture every time I say something, right? So how do you think Malchus must have felt when an enemy came and healed him after being attacked? Because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the thing is, we want them, we want the audience, we want our opponents to realize that we're actually not enemies. That we're actually allies. And we're actually someone who's trying to help you come to Christ and experience the greatest love there is. To get away from sin, to get away from judgment, to experience the gospel of Christ. That's our objective. We want to win them to Christ. We don't want to beat them up. We don't want to say, ha I'm the Christian, you're the idiot, you're the whatever. That's not, the objective is to win them. So whenever we're speaking to them, we want to use grace and we want to use love and empathy to win our opponent over. Here's a big one. Admit when you're stumped. I don't know everything. I do not know. I don't have answers to everything. I'm trying. I know the scripture says we're supposed to have an answer. I don't always have an answer. And it happens. You're going to be confronted with a question you may not know the answer to. Don't try and make up an answer. (laughs) Don't just try and pull something out of thin air because then they can see through and see that, oh, you're just making stuff up. I got you. And then they think you're being dishonest. No, admit when you don't know. It's all right. I can admit when I don't know. Admit when you're stumped. I don't know the answer to that question. But let let me tell you this. Let me go research and I'll get back to you on it. Right? I may not know all the answers, but I at least know some methods on how to find the answers. And I know the person who knows the answer, or should say, who is the answer. Admit when stumped. When you don't know the answer to something about the Bible, admit it. You know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a good point. Let me go back and study that. I'll come back to that. That's fine. And I think people will appreciate your honesty as opposed to just trying to make up something to save face. Let's continue. Second section. Apostasy. This is a very good picture of what is happening in the world today. People are being led astray by all sorts of just crazy doctrines. I mean, just crazy stuff. And part two of this series, and apologetics, and my my class will probably hear about this later. Um, I talk about Bishop Carlton Pearson, uh, how he came up with the doctrine of what's called the gospel of inclusion, in which he stated that Hell was, was, a, was no longer existed or never really was real. That Jesus has redeemed everyone from hell and everyone automatically goes to heaven. And that's a very attractive message. And the gospel inclusion means everybody is included in salvation, which means that whether you believe in Christ or not, you're automatically redeemed. And people started buying that wholesale. And it got really big publicity. And don't go wrong, he lost a lot because of that. He was, of course, excommunicated from his particular fellowship because of it. But he gained a lot of following from other people who have this viewpoint of inclusion, that there really is no 
judgment. There really is no right or wrong. It's just whatever you think it is. And it became so popular, they even made a, a film on Netflix about it called, I think, um, Better Come Sunday. I'm not sure you guys heard of that. Where they basically dramatized his plight and tried to make it look so attractive. Tried to make it look so, so good. It's the apostasy. Apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasy, which means to fall away or forsake. It is used in relation to abandoning the truth for a false belief. We find this word found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling or apostasia, a falling away. First, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. This is, of course, referring to uh, the Antichrist. But there's a following, there's a grand scheme of deception where people are just, they're hearing stuff that sounds good, it's attractive, and they're just buying into it. So the reason for the apostasy is because of the spirit of Antichrist which deceives and stirs hostilities towards the true gospel. 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are, are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. 1 John 4.3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the, in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that I sh it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Now, I forgot the name of the guy. I should have, um, should have wrote it down. There's this guy. He's on TikTok. He's, uh, he's getting quite a following. Uh, and he's pretty much part of, like, the woke movement and about making everything about social justice. And he's, he's greatly abused and misconstrued the text. And there's this video on TikTok where, talk, where he's trying to, to make the point about racial injustice or even, um, you know, women, right, women's rights and female oppression. And he uses the example of the Syrophoenician woman of this, that, that uh, Jesus was racist because he said that even the dog, you know, uh, you don't give the, the children's bread to the dogs. And so, oh, that was a racial slur. And that uh, the woman confronted him about using that racial slur, and Jesus had to, had to repent and say he was sorry, and that's why he healed. I mean, just that's the type of nonsense you're getting out of that. And, and it gets worse and worse. It gets, it gets worse and worse. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself with some of the foolishness that's being taught out there. But people are buying into that, into this being woke stuff, and about social justice, and we care more about issues of race and issues of economics and issues of women's rights than we do about our eternity. Who cares what your race or ethnicity is or what your socioeconomic status is if you're burning in a lake of fire? None of those things matter in the grand scheme of things. I'm not saying they don't matter at all. Please understand me. They are still important issues. But they are forsaking that which matters most for something. They're majoring in minors. And they're using that particular lens to color, pardon the pun, to color their perspective of Scripture. It's an apostasy. First, Second Peter 3, 3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Again, people are saying that Jesus isn't coming back. The whole idea of, of Jesus resurrecting and Jesus coming back for the saints of the rapture, it's all a farce, it's all a fallacy, it's all a myth, a fairy tale. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of them thou hast learned of them. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heed to themselves teachers having itching ears. This is, this is so huge. A good example of this, and I, I, I didn't show the clip, but um, I do have a video of this news story about... Um, and that, it's really disgusting to even think about it. And it's, it's really offensive, of course, to us. But there's a group of people, they're called Christian swingers. Have you ever heard of this? 
people who believe that swinging is a form of evangelism. For those of you who don't know what swinging is, it's when a couple, a married couple, will exchange partners with another married couple and have uh, marital relations with them. Uh, and there's a video cl- a clip about this, about this, this group of, say they're Christians, and they, they, they swing. They, they practice this, uh, basically it's adultery, was what it is, and fornication. And they are trying to justify it. Again, they will not endure sound doctrine. And they ignore scriptures that talk about you shouldn't cover your neighbor's wife. Or they'll try and twist the scripture to make it say something that has nothing to do with that situation at all. Section number three, I want my lawyer. Types of accusers. Here are the, now, this is not an exhaustive list. But these are just four basic types of people that you're going to run into when you start preaching Christ and start trying to talk about the gospel. There's the atheist, of course. The moral relativist the bitter, and what I like to call the deceived. Now, this is just four basic categories. Again, this is not exalt, uh, exhaustive or all-encompassing. But this is just four basic ones, general ones, that you tend to run into. Let's deal with the first, which is the atheist. Of course, they attack the Bible because they do not believe in God. They think that the idea of God is offensive, it is absurd, it is ridiculous, and their understanding, their, their standard for judging Reality really is based upon the natural senses and in the sciences. They attack God because, or they attack the Bible because they don't believe in God. So now if you're dealing with an atheist, uh, it's a bit tricky with this because you can't necessarily always refer to the Bible as an authoritative source because they don't even believe that there's a God to even endorse the Bible itself. So you're going to have to use some logical reasons uh, in in your, your discourse with them. Now, you can use the Bible in certain ways to prove... First you, to, you first have to prove that the Bible is true. That's the first thing you have to do, that it's an authoritative source. Uh, and you have to do that, firstly, through prophecy. That's the primary way that we know that the Bible is the Word of God, that throughout history, God has, for, uh, has predicted uh, events in amazing detail many, many years in advance. And we want to use that as an example of how to prove that the Bible is actually true and that how the Bible actually addresses the, the main problems within mankind, which is the sin problem. So first, of course, you address, you're going to run into the atheist. So when you're dealing with them, you have to first, before you can even have a dialogue really about the gospel, really getting into the gospel, you have to try to get them to believe that the Bible is actually even true. Because otherwise, what you're quoting just doesn't mean anything to them. Who cares? You know, God isn't even real. It's just, it's just, it's just another book of literature amongst many books of literature. Now, one of the things that you can do to bypass that, though, is getting back to what I said earlier, which is love. Uh, I wish I, I had, uh, I remember the name of this person. My wife was telling me this, this uh, story she watched uh, about these, um, they were atheists living during World War II in Nazi Germany. And uh, they eventually became Christians themselves. And they, they, were, they were Jews. And uh, they escaped uh, from the Nazis. But uh, this one particular lady, her whole family was murdered by the Nazis in a death camp. And later on, in uh, another country, they ran into some of these Nazis. And they actually, they actually had to host some of these Nazis at their house. And uh, the husband, who was a very passionate Christian, said, you know, that we believe that there's a God. And the, and the Nazis, I don't believe there's a God. It's like, what if I could prove to you that there is a God? And the Nazis said, well, sure, fine, take your best shot. And he, he asked them, what death camp did this Nazi particularly worked at? It just so happened to be the exact death camp where this lady's family was. 
And he was the one that did the executions. So this man had murdered this woman's mother, her father, brothers, sisters. And so the husband said to the Nazi, he said, I bet if I went and got my wife and I told her who you were and told her what you've done to her family, she would come and just love on you. So that's ridiculous. So he went and he told her that this man's a Nazi. This man was at this particular death camp and he handled all the executions. And she just smiled and just hugged him and says, God loves you and I forgive you. And he was like, what? That to him was enough evidence to show him that there is a God because only God could take someone and fill them with that much forgiveness and love. And that in of itself was enough evidence to convince the Nazi to become a Christian. Sometimes we don't always have all the logical or rational arguments. Sometimes the best way to beat, to beat the argument is just to use the love of God. But I digress. Let's continue. The moral relativists, a person who may believe in God, but only in the loving and merciful aspects of his nature. They attack the Bible to justify a particular lifestyle that they practice that is condemned by it. Now you can think of all sorts of people who fit into this category. There's a pretty big category in that one where we try to make every morality relative. There's no objective, absolute right and wrong. There's no absolute standard for right and wrong. It's just whatever you think it is. Whatever you think is right or whatever you think is wrong. You're, what you think is right for, is right for you, what I think is right for myself, and so on. And again, you can arrive at that conclusion, especially if you're an atheist. If, there, if you're an atheist and there is no objective, absolute standard for morality, then who's to say what is right and wrong? There is no good and evil. You have nothing to, to really define it. And who's to say that um, you have the right to basically say I'm wrong? <laughs> You can, it's everything's relative. And so by doing that, we just try and make everything relative, and we only want to hear all the happy, good things about, about God, all the loving characteristics about God, all the merciful, gracious stuff. We ignore all the parts about him being holy and about him being righteous and being a God of justice and a God of judgment. They ignore those parts, and they only want to embrace the loving parts, the things that affirm the way that they, they live. And so they'll take scriptures, and they'll completely twist them, to basically justify a lifestyle that the Bible clearly condemns and say everything is just relative. And that's what we're seeing now. And that's why, you know, definitions are changing for everything. We have to change the definitions of stuff because that's how we can basically justify our behavior. The moral relativists. So what you have to do with these people is that you have to get them to conclude that there actually is an absolute standard. Because without an absolute standard, then there really is no way for us to even define what good and evil is. Who's to say that what the Nazis did in, in Germany, uh, massacring six million Jews during the Holocaust, was wrong? Who are you to say that? By what authority? By what standard by, did you judge that? Again, if you have an atheistic perspective, we're all just animals, right? Who's to say, you know, when, when a lion eats a gazelle, who's to say that's wrong? It's just acting out its behavior. And if we're all animals, who's to say it's wrong for me to go shoot you or stab you? Did you know that is the exact reasoning, that is the exact philosophy that motivated a very famous serial killer by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer? He said it was because of evolution that he felt justified in practicing cannibalism and dismembering and torturing and murdering, I think, over 20 people. It was that type of thinking. It was an atheistic society, a moral relativistic society that rose to 
the communist regimes that rose to uh, people like John Lennon or Joseph Stalin or rose to the Chinese communist government where they just massacred people and they tried to expel any idea of there being a God because morality is all relative. Who's to say any of that's wrong? If there's not a standard by which we can judge right and wrong, then we really have no right to say what is right and wrong and anything can go. And you can't get mad at me for doing what I'm doing and you can't get mad at, or I can't get mad at you, so to speak. But of course, they don't accept that. They obviously, we all down deep really know that there is an objective right and wrong. Let's continue. The bitter. A person who may, may or may not believe in God who has experienced tragedy or perceived injustice in life in relation to God or believers. They attack the Bible out of pain and hurt. They've experienced a tragedy or a trauma. And that tragedy and trauma defines their experience, defines their life. And because of that, they can no longer accept the premise of their being a loving God. And therefore, they have a, an agenda to discredit and to attack it out of that pain and out of that hurt. This is a very tricky one to deal with because now we're dealing with experiences. We're not just dealing with arguments and theories. We're dealing with experiences. And in this particular realm of apologetics, we then need to somehow interpret or, or deal with the experience through the lens of Scripture to provide an explanation as to why they may have had that or how God can deal with that. How can God exist? How can there be a loving God when there is so much evil and there is so much suffering and there's so much pain. And again, getting back to my previous argument, in order for you to even de to define what evil is or what suffering or, or anything wicked is, you have to use God as a point of reference. <laughs> so just, I mean, you can't even make frame the argument properly unless God is there as a point of reference. But that's really kind of skirting the issue. What we need to help them to understand is that God is not necessarily the author of wickedness and of evil, that it is a byproduct of man's choices and of man's free will, that God created a paradise. He created a world that was free of any of these, these ailments and free of any of these social ills that we see. It was man that rejected him. It is the absence of God's influence in our lives that has led to the train wreck of a reality that we're in right now. The reason why that there are rapings and molestations and killings is because as a whole, for the most part, humanity has rejected God. And with, because of the absence of God, there is wickedness. Just as, is, as there is the absence of light, there is darkness. And it is the beseeching and the, uh, the enlisting of God's aid that we can find healing from these traumas and that we can find relief and rest from these things. Now, in this case, also, we want to use God's love. We don't want to just, you know, minimize their pain or minimize their bitterness. One of the best arguments you can use in this case is to point to Jesus. And I know so that sounds so cliche. Well, yes, we're, all, we're trying to point them to Jesus. No, I mean, they're going to be asking the question as to, okay, why did this happen to me? Why? Why was I raped? Why was I abandoned? Why was I abused? Why was I betrayed? Why was I hurt? Why did my loved one have to die? They'll ask all those questions. The thing is, they're asking the wrong why question. They shouldn't be asking, why me? They should be asking, why him? What do you mean, why him? This is the answer God gave to me when I was mourning the death of a very close friend. He'd uh, fallen off uh, uh, a pier into Lake Michigan and drowned tragically. He was only 20 years old, was a young man who was faithful in the church. 
And I was greatly distraught over the issue. And I was asking God, well, why did this happen? This is the answer he gave me, which is this. You're asking the wrong why question. Why did I have to die? Because the thing is, no matter how innocent we think we are, all of us have a sinful nature. All of us have made bad choices. All of us deserve penalties for our sin. Jesus was perfectly innocent. The greatest travesty of justice to ever occur within the history of mankind happened to Jesus. Because Jesus didn't have to die. We all deserve the punishment, but he took the punishment and the penalty for us. Why did you have to die is the question we should ask. And also that we don't serve a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That Christ experienced the collective and universal wickedness and pain of all of mankind on the cross. So that whenever we are trying to basically attack God and say, God, you don't understand, he, he understands perfectly. He understands perfectly because he experienced it at the cross. So we need to get them to understand that God understands how you feel and he's here to help you deal with the issue. We want to show them the love of Christ in dealing with their bitterness and their pain. The deceived. A person who does believe in God and the Bible but has a corrupted understanding of it due to man's tradition, poor teaching, or poor study. And although unintentional, they attack the Bible in order to protect a false teaching. Again, you can, I'm sure you can think of all sorts of groups who fall into this category. Um, they have a tradition. They have a teaching. And they are so sold on that teaching because of how they were told or how they were taught. They no longer are examining the scripture critically and thinking for themselves. And because of that, they will defend this tradition wholeheartedly. Even when there's clear scripture that basically denounces it. And so when we're dealing with these, we really want to... <laughs> we really The best way to deal with this is to ask questions. Ask questions and introduce the idea of contradiction. Ask questions because if a teaching is true, then it shouldn't contradict itself. For something to be true, it needs to be logically consistent. So then what we want to do is just simply ask questions and show the logical contradictions within their teaching that, that contradict clear scripture. This is something that um, Walter, Dr. Walter Martin was very good at this, um, particularly witnessing with Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. When he just began just to ask questions. He wouldn't attack them or just start, you know, saying, well, you're wrong. He would just ask questions. And the questions would lead the person to start analyzing their own assertions and coming to their own conclusions that what I'm saying cannot be correct. So when you're dealing with someone that's deceived, one, also you want to employ the power of the Holy Spirit because the, Holy, the Spirit of truth has to cut through that spirit of deception in order to get them to understand the truth. So prayer is one thing. The second is to introduce contradiction through inquiry and through questions. So again, discrediting the Bible. When people try to discredit the Bible, they try to do it through one, attacking God's nature or behavior, attacking God's laws or principles, or attacking God's testimony or account of reality. Those, the attacks will come in those three ways. They will either attack God's nature. How can God be loving if there's so much wickedness in the world? Attacking God's behavior, some of the judgments that he's done. God's laws or principles, how can God be fair or just? Attacking God's testimony or account of reality. What do you mean Noah built an ark? That's, that's ridiculous, you know. How do you mean that, you know, Jonah could be swallowed by a whale and live in there for three days? That sounds ridiculous. What do you mean, you know, just go down the list, you know, water coming out of a rock and bread raining from the sky and all these things. That sounds ridiculous. How can that be reality? 
And so they'll question the historicity of, of God, the testimony of God. They're going to attack it by one of those three ways, knowing that will help you in kind of defining your defense. So here's some things that they do, quotation without context, some things the way they discredit the Bible. Look at this picture very carefully. So we have a picture here of, of uh, two people. A man is being chased. One man is being chased by another, and the other guy has a knife that's chasing him. Now, if you look at the TV screen here, it looks like the man being chased is the one doing the attacking. But if you look at the whole context, it's actually the man that's, <laughs> that's, the man that's um, being chased that's being attacked. We need context, the whole picture. A lot of people, whenever they attack the Bible, they'll quote verses in isolation by themselves and then try to make it say something that it has, it's not saying at all. When you look at the context, you start to get a full understanding of what's going on. Context is the mother of interpretation and a revealer of intent. You cannot interpret anything without context. Everything needs some sort of context. God did not speak in a vacuum. So, well, I guess you can make that statement he did when he said, let there be. But other than that, he didn't speak in a vacuum. It's out of nowhere. There's always a context that's there. Here's an example of this. Judge not. How many of you guys ever heard that? Don't judge me. The Bible, doesn't the Bible say judge not? Matthew 7, 1, judge not that ye be not judged. People quote me. Don't quit judging me. Quit saying that this sin is wrong. Quit saying this lifestyle is wrong. Quit saying, you know, only God can judge me. <laughs> you heard that one. But is that really what Jesus is saying in this text? Is he telling us that we're not supposed to judge other people? Let's keep reading. So, as I said, people often quote this verse to stop people from holding them accountable for their actions. But is the Bible really saying that we're not supposed to judge? Verse 2 says, For that what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou uh, pay, um, say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and thou, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. The text is not saying not to judge. It's just firstly saying, be consistent when you judge. He says, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured you again. The same standard used to judge other people is going to be used on you. So it's not saying don't judge other people. It's saying be consistent when you judge. And then also it's saying before you judge people, first judge yourself. So it's not saying anything, saying don't judge people. It's saying be consistent when you judge, and before you judge, take a look in the mirror, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? So it's not saying that at all. Context. We want to have context whenever looking into this. Hermeneutical ignorance. So a lot of people, again, when they're, they don't have the, the knowledge of how to study the Bible, how to interpret it. And I already quoted this earlier, so I'm going to skip it for now about studying to show ourselves approved. Biblical variables, as I said before, context, historical and cultural. The writer, uh, the audience, the translation of the text, literal or, is it literal or figurative. The Bible uses metaphors, analogies, puns, allegories. All those things are there. Multiple applications, prophetic, is it a commandment, is it cautionary tale, etc. These are all different variables that, that play into how we interpret the text. Most people, whenever they're quoting a verse, they don't consider any of these things at all. And so we want to bring, say, wait a minute, look at all these different things you're ignoring when you're arriving at your interpretation, and you're just pretty much pulling something out of thin air. Negation of intent and purpose. Now here's a huge one. I cannot emphasize this one enough. So negation of intent and, and purpose. Second Peter 3.15 says, An account 
an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, which means to wrestle or to twist, to manipulate, to coerce, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. For example, and we're going to talk about this in the next section, I'm going to try and wrap this up, is that whenever the Bible is saying something, says a commandment, says a law, you need to ask yourself, well, why is he saying that? People just look at a law and say, that's ridiculous that God say that, or that's in the Bible. But they're not asking, why did he say it? And because you don't know the intent of the law, the law looks ridiculous, looks stupid. But if you know the, well, in the context, you understand the intention of it, then it doesn't look sound so crazy at all that they negate the intent or the purpose of what the text is actually for. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that 2 Peter 1.20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It means you can't just look at the Bible and say, Well, this is what I think. That no prophecy is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time, but by the will of man, or by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Lack of experience and knowledge of the author. And here's where we have a big advantage, okay? They don't know the author of the Bible like we do. We know the author. We can ask him questions. They don't necessarily know the author oftentimes like we have know the author. And because we have the spirit of truth in us, we have a, a kind of a, uh, an advantage in this area of defending what the true intention of the scripture is. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip this. This is basically talking about what Brother Joe was referring to earlier, about how the natural man does not receive the spiritual things of God because they are spiritually discerned. So accuser flaws, I just said, quotation without context, hermeneutical ignorance, negation of intent, purpose, and lack of experience, knowledge with the author. So I'm going to wrap this up with this last section. I'm going to kind of bring this to a, a head here. Cross-examination. Cross-examination is to examine by questions intended to check a previous examination, examine closely or minutely. To examine a witness called by the opposing side as for the purpose of discrediting the witness's testimony. In a court of law, when there's a cross-examination, basically the prosecutor gets an opportunity to deal with the defendant and deal with the arguments or with the evidence of that, of that defendant and vice versa. The, def the defense is able to cross-examine, to, to basically question the, uh, a witness of the opposing party. But I'm going to talk about cross-examination a different way. That's all true. What we're going to do is do some cross-examination, referring to the cross of Jesus Christ in our examinations of Scripture. Christ's cross-examination. Most scriptural examinations will in some way intersect, answer, or be related to Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. John 5.39 says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. That the scriptures as a whole, they are all pointing to Christ because the redemptive story of Christ is the central focus of the scriptures, of God bringing back mankind into a saving relationship with himself. And so when, with that thought in mind, whenever we go to the scripture, we want to try and deal with some of these attacks. Attacking the laws. One of the main things that people love to do is attack uh, the laws of God, particularly the Old Testament. This is a quotation from someone I was talking to you on Facebook. They said, the Bible also says, eating pork, wearing clothes with mixed fabrics, divorce, tattoos, women's voting rights, or a woman's ability to assume authority over a man are all sins. Many of the old New Testament values are outdated for our time. 
And so they'll, they'll mention all these Old Testament laws and say it's out of date. And they'll look at our modern framework. We're so modern, we're so sophisticated and all these other things. And that all these things that the Old Testament is saying are ridiculous. You know, eating pork, wearing clothes with two different fabrics and divorce and voting rights of women and so on. All these are outdated. They're antiquated, archaic. And then they'll attack, the, they'll, they love to use Old Testament examples to try and stump the Christian because they say, you guys are following these laws. You guys uh, wear fabrics of, you know, with two different, uh, wear clothing with two different, two different uh, fabrics. Did you guys have bacon for breakfast today? That means you're violating the dietary laws. And then on and on. Did you go, did you work on the Sabbath? <laughs> we'll go, go down the list. And they'll start listing all these Old Testament laws. They do that because they're trying to shut us up. Because we'll say, the Bible says this. And then they'll say, well, you're picking and choosing, right? You, only, you, don't, you, you do these laws, but you don't do these other laws. Okay, we'll deal with that one in just a minute. But uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's dive into this real quick. So the lost purpose. The lost purpose was not to save or make righteous, but to reveal sin. That's number one. Number two was to protect from worldly corruption. And thirdly, they were shadows and types. The laws were given as examples to illustrate New Testament or spiritual principles. So let's dive into some of these first. Not to save or make righteous, but to reveal sin. Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 7 says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of, our, of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. In other words, the lost purpose was a big mirror to show us how stank nasty we were. That's layman's terms. Mankind was so drunk in its own hubris, its own arrogance, its own grandeur, its own goodness, that it thought that it didn't need God and it thought it was righteous on its own. So God created the law to show them how unrighteous and wicked we are so we'd finally admit we are in dire need of the intervention of a Savior. The law's purpose was to point us to Christ. Galatians 3, 21-25 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. It's a schoolmaster. It's, it's, it's designed to lead us unto Christ, to show us our sinful nature. I'm not going to read all this for the sake of time. Uh, to protect from worldly corruption. Leviticus 18.24 says, Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And it's, and, uh, and the, the uh, sorry, I lost my place there. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations. The purpose of the law was to keep Israel a saved and sanctified separate nation from all the pagan and secular nations that were around it. Why? Because that nation was going to be the, the means by which the Savior was to come. And this was a nation that was dedicated strictly to Jehovah. So God created certain laws to give the nation a, a certain identity to keep itself separate from all the secular and paganistic and, yes, even satanic nations that surrounded it. Take your time to skip this as well. Uh, shadows and types. Wrapping this up. Colossians 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new man or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. 
Hebrews 10.1 says this, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with the, the, those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make them come as perfect. In other words, the law, it was designed to show us spiritual things that are going to happen in the New Testament. So a lot of the laws there, they have uh, much deeper, more profound meanings than just their literal application that's there. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, I'm only going to go to a few of these things. I'm going to close with this this last slide here, and then we're, we're going to kind of wrap things up here. So there are four different types of laws. Really, I guess you can say three, but I've kind of added a fourth. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and we like to call the dispensational. So the moral law. The moral law are the laws that are universal, the laws that are eternal. They're not dependent upon culture or society or nation, uh, national identity, they are universal. What do I mean by universal moral laws? I mean, you know, thou shalt not murder. I think everyone can accept that's wrong. That doesn't, doesn't matter what the culture is or what society you're in. Adultery, that's always wrong. It's, I can't think of a single justifiable reason to cheat on your wife, <laughs> okay? That's always wrong. That's a moral law. Uh, you know, stealing, that's a moral law. And that's typically a universal law you'll see in any culture. It, it goes beyond culture because it deals with God's nature of righteousness. The ceremonial laws, they are the religious laws that deal with sacrifices and worship and so on. You know, the dietary laws, not eating pork and touching certain unclean animals and mixing of fabrics and so on. Then you have the civil law, which are basically like our laws today. You know, laws that govern human interaction. Laws that deal with, like, let's say, restitution if damages are, are, are done. Things of that nature. Civil law. And then dispensational laws are laws that deal with, that in a sense they had an expiration date. They dealt primarily with the state of mankind in relation to God at that particular time before Christ could bring redemption. And the thing is, whenever people start quoting Old Testament laws, they ignore the fact that there's these categories that are there. And that when Jesus died and he resurrected, he did away, or should say did away, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws and all the laws that they're quoting sound ridiculous to us today and all the cultural societal laws which were strictly for the nation of Israel to keep it sanctified and separate from the pagan nations. He did not, however, fulfill or, or outlaw the immoral laws. And the fact of the matter is because we understand those concepts, yeah, we do pick and choose. But the fact of the matter is they're picking and choosing too. Because they'll pick and choose, they would agree that Lying is wrong or that cheating is wrong. But where'd you get that from? <laughs> where'd you get that idea from? Uh, the Bible. Why well, don't believe in the Bible? Believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, the Bible is what influenced, particularly, especially any Western society has been influenced by the Bible, by the Bible's laws or its ideas. And it, whether you knew it or not, those ideas are there. And so you're picking and choosing certain laws too, but again, you don't have a reason as to why you're picking and choosing. I do. I have, a, I have a criteria to show which ones have expired or which ones have been fulfilled and which ones are still universal. And so when people try to attack you and say, um, well, these laws are ridiculous, you know, you're eating pork or whatever, or we, start, we quote an Old Testament law that's a moral law, they'll try and get out of it by saying, well, you don't do these other ones. No, we, you're right, we don't. And the reason why is because Christ fulfilled them. And they were only for that particular time, but not the moral universal laws which you're trying to get out of. The moral universal laws are repeated in the New Testament. And they, are, they are, go across generations and across time. They go across cultures. And so you have to look at all those different things whenever you're answering some of those arguments. Let's stand. I'm going to quit.
don't want to keep you here too much longer. I had more slides and so on, but I don't want to hold you here too long. I hope this has helped somebody as far as, as understanding how to defend your faith. How to defend, how to explain your faith. Because if you, if you can't explain your faith, then one, you'll, you'll be deceived. You'll fall into all sorts of bad doctrine. Uh, you'll, you'll get uh, swept away. But also, you'll be ineffective in your ability to evangelize and to witness unto others. And so we want to do the best that we can to be, have a, a, an answer ready in our lips to explain of the hope that lies within us. So let us pray today, and I want to pray for all of you, that we'd all have a mind to defend the text, to defend the scripture, to stand on the word of God, regardless of what comes our way, and to, to continue to champion the faith, to, to evangelize and explain why we believe what we believe. Let us pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we glorify, we exalt you, we magnify you and bless you and worship you. And we ask, oh God, give us the, the fortitude, give us the, the, the clarity of mind, oh God, to stand upon your word, to explain your word, to stand before the critics, to stand before the scoffers and the mockers and be able to answer them truthfully and with love, to win them over to you. Father, I speak your blessing upon this congregation. Bless, oh God, everyone, everyone within my hearing. Bless our pastor as he's making his way back from his trip, oh God. Keep him safe that he might return unto us to teach us the word of God. Lord, we just thank you, we praise you, we worship you and honor you. And in Jesus' name, amen.